The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. Up next is a discussion with Chris Patton, the last British governor of Hong Kong, revisiting the handover of the colony to China, the recent crackdown on pro-democracy activists, and how the West should be dealing with the People's Republic. Welcome to The Exchange. I'm Peter Fahlarsson, Global Editor of Breaking Views, the financial commentary arm of Reuters. In so many ways, Hong Kong is the focal point for the deteriorating relations between China and the West. Next month, it will be 25 years since Britain handed back the colony to the People's Republic. For the first decade or so, Hong Kong defied those who said that the handover would undermine the way of life in the territory, as China largely stuck to its promise to allow Hong Kong autonomy for a period of 50 years. More recently, however, conditions have deteriorated, as restrictions on civil rights triggered protests, which have led to a harsh crackdown on pro-democracy activists and the media. Chris Patton was in Hong Kong between 1992 and 1997, as the last British governor of the colony before the handover. This gave him up-close experience of dealing with China. Since then, he's remained a perceptive and thoughtful commentator on Hong Kong and on relations with China as a member of Britain's House of Lords and as Chancellor of Oxford University, among many other jobs. He's just published his diaries of his time as governor. They're an entertaining and gossipy read on the daily back and forth between Britain and China in the years running up to 1997 full of sharp and not always flattering pen portraits of the politicians, bureaucrats, business leaders and others that Chris Patton encountered. I sat down with him to talk about the lessons from that period and his views on how to deal with China in the future. Settle in, we cover a lot of ground. So Chris Patton, welcome to The Exchange. Delighted to be with you. I wanted to start by quoting your own words back to you from from East and West, the book you wrote after leaving Hong Kong in 97. In the introduction, you said, I kept a diary of much of my time in Hong Kong. I hope my family will be entertained by its accurate indiscretions when I am long gone. But now you've decided to publish them. So what made you decide to do that? Well, I'm not long gone, (laughs) (laughs) partly because time has passed. And I noticed that the Radcliffe report, which um, talks about when ministers should be able to publish their memoirs or their diaries, says that you know, it's sensible not to do anything for 15 years. Well, it's now 25 years since I um, left, left Hong Kong. And I thought that they would be interesting now. Um, I wanted to look at them before I gave them to the Bodleian Library for, for scholars to look at. And I wanted to, I thought that they would be useful in the debate at present about how to deal with China. And I thought they would be in particular interesting in putting into context China's view of its own exceptionalism and its its tendency to regard it as useful to persuade other people that unless they accept the Chinese narrative, they can't do business with China, which is pretty good bilge. So I thought those things would be useful. And I also thought that it would be quite entertaining and that before I handed it over to the Bodleian, I should have a look at it myself. And I took the lockdown as an opportunity for doing that. The diaries are filled with fascinating anecdotes and little pen portraits of the of the politicians and diplomats and business leaders that you met and crossed swords with. I mean, one thing that struck me reading it now is how, as governor, you face this intense pressure 
not just from China, but also from the business community in both Hong Kong and the UK to sort of not jeopardize their opportunities or their or the, the, the business ventures that they might be about to get. It's clear from the diaries that you were quite skeptical about those opportunities, even at the time. And I guess you could say, well, the subsequent experience vindicates that. Do you have an explanation for why businesses were so sort of naive in their dealings with China? No, it's extraordinary that they managed to, um, some of them, to um, acquire these assumptions about how to do business with China without looking at the evidence. Yeah. Because I don't think there's, there was any relationship really between my behavior or what we did in Hong Kong and how businesses did in China. Um, but if you thought there was some relationship, then it was inverse. Because in the years before I became governor of Hong Kong, um, when we were presumably putting um, the idea of having the best possible relationship with China at the heart of um, everything we did, our trade with China was actually falling and investment. In the years when I was in Hong Kong, I think our trade increased by faster than any other OECD uh, member. Um, and the investment was pretty good as well. And I, I just think it's it was extraordinary that people did three things when they were criticizing me. First of all, not to actually look at the facts. And it was, it was very easy to blame something I had done for the fact that somebody didn't get a contract. And by and large, the Chinese do business on the same basis as other people. They buy what they want at the best price they can get. Mm -hmm. Secondly, I thought it was also um, interesting the extent to which a lot of people in Hong Kong um, behaved as though Hong Kong was a fi great financial hub, but without people. Um, and on the whole, the people who were being most critical of me usually had, were either foreign or had a British passport in their back pockets and weren't too keen about the people who had a real sense of Hong Kong citizenship who deserved to be um, properly looked after. Uh, and thirdly, um, I thought it was extraordinary that there was never an understanding of the fact that in order to deal with um, Chinese bullying, you have to actually both have a bottom line and to share it with other people. There are all sorts of examples in the last few years. When the Chinese foreign minister went to Australia in early 2020 and said that what had been reported as happening in Wuhan wasn't a big problem, it was, wasn't, it was preventable, curable and transmissible, no problem there. At the same time, the Australians discovered the Chinese were buying PPE equipment hand over fish from Australia as well as from here. So the Australians not unreasonably asked to have um, a proper inquiry into what had happened uh, under the WTO, WHO rather, at which point they become the bad boys and are bullied. And instead of the rest of us saying, this has got to stop and mm. um, we're going to deal with this collectively through the WTO. We all roll over backwards, ro ro roll over and try to humor China. But China has to be in its own interest as well as in our interest treated like the rest of the international community. I'm not in favor of trying to contain China, which would be absurd, but constrain China and, and its bad behavior, I think is in all our interests and ultimately in China's interest too. And do you think so what's what's happened subsequent to 97 and, and more recently in Hong Kong and so forth, and, and, and I guess also particularly in China, 
Do you, do you sense more of a realism in the business community now about that? I think there is more realism. I still think there is there is a tendency to have, however, for people when they look at history to say, well, of course, nobody in Hong Kong was interested in democracy and patent until patent came along. All they wanted to do was to make money, which is an incredibly patronising and ludicrous thing to say. And it was plainly uh, not the truth after Tiananmen. It was plainly not the truth much earlier. We were educating people. We were opening universities hand over fist. We were developing an educated, well-taught middle class. And to think that they didn't notice what was happening in, in South Korea or Taiwan or elsewhere, to think that they weren't taking some lessons from what they read about the rest of the world and about history was absolutely preposterous. So I never took the view that, that the people in Hong Kong were only interested in making money like the rest of us. They were pretty keen on being, on being well off, but they were also pretty keen on being able to make decisions about their own lives. Yes, and absolutely, and it's clear that your, sort of, your sense of, of obligation to those people, I think you make the point several times that a lot of those people were people who had left mainland China and come to Hong Kong, that, that there was a... Yeah, there were about maybe two-thirds, three-quarters of people in Hong Kong were refugees from communism. Mm. So for the Communist Party to think you can only show that you love China by loving the Communist Party is rather difficult. If you've left because of the Great Leap Forward or because of the Cultural Revolution or because of the Great Famine, mm. and which so many, so many of them had. I think that one of the real problems always in in in. Hong Kong was I wasn't ever really sure that when Deng Xiaoping and other leaders said Hong Kong could remain as it was for 50 years after 1997 they really understand understood what the it was I think a lot of the time they simply thought that that um, Hong Kong was a place where people were allowed to get rich um, and of course it was a great deal more than that mm. I mean so at the end of the diaries you have a you have a chapter about what happened after 97 called the destruction of Hong Kong and it's obviously true that, that many of the, the sort of the protections that would have put, put into place have been sort of dismantled in, in recent years but but that's quite recent I mean for the first 15 or you could argue maybe even 20 years after the handover it wasn't clear that this outcome was inevitable so what changed do you think? Xi Jinping. Or, right. I mean I, I think that while it's true that after 1997 Beijing bogged a few things up. They weren't terrifically good at choosing some of the leaders. I mean, the people were chosen mainly on the grounds that they were malleable. Not true about Donald Chang, but certainly about C.H. Tung, a perfectly decent, very conservative uh, Chinese-American businessman who thought there was too much democracy in, in America and Britain, let alone in, in, in Hong Kong. C.Y. Lung, who was, a, who was a nasty bit of work, which people identified pretty, pretty uh, early on and was plainly, I think, um, uh, a United Front enthusiast and, and member for some time, Carrie Lam, um, who would do whatever she was told by the, the tallest person in the room. So they didn't choose very well, but by and large, for ten a dozen years after 1997, with the exception of the demonstrations provoked by an attempt to introduce a law on sedition and treason and and secession mm. in 2003, by and large, things didn't go too badly. Um, it's true that, that um, China went back on its commitments to develop democratic institutions. It's true that they interfered too much and were very often questioning things like the separation of powers and the relevance of the joint declaration as other than a historical document. So those things were true. But by and large, Hong Kong until 
2013, 2014 was the same place that it had been. It was recognizably the same. Free speech, freedom of worship, rule of law, and so on. What then happened, I think, was was Xi Jinping coming to the top in Beijing. And I think what he did surprised a lot of people because what it actually amounted to eventually was going back to one-party rule, to the cult of personality, um, a love of Maoism and Mao, which was odd because his father had been persecuted by Mao mm. and was brought back um, by Deng Xiaoping and was a reformer under Deng Xiaoping. So people expected um, Xi Jinping to be like that. But I, I think he was on the Chinese leadership was knocked off course by several things. First of all, I think they were profoundly spooked by an attempt by Bo Xilai to elbow his way with the help of Zhao Yongkang, the head of security and the energy industry in effect, um, to, to barge their way into the standing committee with the Politburo and stay there. But more important, I think, than that was a sense that things were drifting and the party was starting to lose its grip. And I think that was manifested, first of all, by their nervousness, growing nervousness about the consequences of globalization, mm -hmm. by the consequences of urbanization, and by changes in the internet and the amount of media information that people were getting. And I think all those things um, bothered them. So if you, if you look at what Xi Jinping has, has done, which is cracking down on civil society, on lawyers in Xinjiang, in Tibet, and so on, and in particular, of course, uh, as far as I'm concerned, in Hong Kong. If you look at all that, it's a reflection of the first instructions he put out to the party, party was given as he became leader. It was called rather, in a rather Orwellian um, phrase, a communique number nine. And it were instructions to the party cadres and to the government to fight an, a, quote, intense struggle against all the things which the Chinese leadership thought were represented, representations of open societies and liberal democracy. Um, the rule of law, freedom of speech, um, freedom in, in education, parliamentary democracy, historical recidivism. In other words, don't talk about Tiananmen. So all those things are of course, above all, ways of describing, or partly ways of describing Hong Kong, because Hong Kong is all those things. Mm. It, was a, it was for years a liberal society without having the ability to elect its own leader, and about the only one in the world that you could think of, um, with seven million people and the eighth largest trading entity in the world when we left in, in uh, 1997. So an important fiscal and economic player with a model which had brought together economic and political freedom in a way which I don't think the Chinese leadership entirely understood. And I think by the time of, of Xi Jinping, they regarded it, regarded it as a real threat. And that was, of course, then provoked by the, by the huge demonstrations against the extradition treaty in uh, 2019, um, with up to two million people on the streets which followed the Occupation Central, which followed the Joshua Wong demonstrations against turning education into engineering of the soul, mm. to use a communist expression. So all those things got together and I think persuaded the Xi Jinping and, and other leaders that they had to crack down very hard on Hong Kong because otherwise um, it was going to elect clearly a strongly pro-democratic legislature. It had, it had, in the elections in 2019, which 
Xi Jinping was obviously told would would show that the silent majority uh, in Hong Kong were against the demonstrations. It actually showed exactly the opposite. 86%, I think, of the seats went to pan-democrats. And the following year, they were looking towards legislative council elections where presumably the results would be much the same. One of the things they first cracked down on was an attempt by by, by, um, democratic candidates to choose the most likely to be successful candidates for LegCo. Um, They operated um, informal elections and that um, then ended up with, with loads of them, dozens of them being charged with offences which were somehow threats to Chinese control over Hong Mm. Kong. Taking all of that into account and the sort of the bigger, the much bigger picture uh, in terms of in terms of what's going on in China, I suppose if you look up, you look back to the run up to the handover and and the the constraints that you were operating under and the British government was operating under in terms of in terms of the timetable and so forth. Is there anything else that you could or should have done that would have led to a different outcome? Well, I don't think there was very much, given that the outcome was ultimately not determined by weaknesses in the joint declaration, the international treaty with with China, but by what happened in the Chinese leadership, that is Xi Jinping coming along. But there are some things which could have been different, I suppose. First of all, when the joint declaration was being um, debated and discussed, not least in Parliament, there were efforts made particularly by some people in Hong Kong, to get the government to agree that there should be an arbitration mechanism in the treaty. And this was regarded with some horror, I think, by some of the um, people who shaped the policy in in London, not least, and would have been regarded with horror in in, uh, Beijing as well. And what they argued, not least in the House of Commons again and again, was that they didn't need an arbitration mechanism because they were starting to introduce rather more democracy in Hong Kong. So democracy would be would be the um, the, the main defence. Uh, now, when we started talking about mild, mild movements in, to make Hong Kong more accountable, they then threw up their hands in horror and said, "Oh no, um, this this will annoy China," because their mindset was one in which um, there was a big game to be played with China. And some Hong, somehow Hong Kong was a, a, a pebble in the sandal um, that uh, it was getting in the way. But that we never had an issue in our relationship with China, which was as big as Hong Kong, which mm. when we left in 1997 was worth about 18% of China's GDP. There was nothing, there was nothing which was remotely um, on a scale with that. And I think that there was, there was one area where there was an unhappy um, uh, convergence between the opinion of some um, diplomats and businessmen in, in outside uh, Hong Kong and well outside China and the Chinese Communist Party. They hated the idea of people in Hong Kong being involved in the discussion about their future. Mm. They hated the idea of transparency in negotiations. The, the, the Chinese side had a particularly ludicrous expression to this if you wanted to have um, to talk to uh, LegCo about what you were going to do before you talked to them, or above all, if you wanted to have Hong Kong Chinese civil servants in your delegation for negotiation, they would talk it. They would talk about it as um, the three-legged stool, and this was this was wrong. 
And I used to point out that the two-legged stools always fall over. And the three-legged stool <laughs> was quite important because um, when we tried before my time to bring in the Court of Final Appeal to replace the jurisdiction of the Privy Council um, in Hong Kong, we'd had secret negotiations with the Chinese, which when we had to go public and introduce a law in Hong Kong had been shredded by the legislature and by the legal profession. So it plainly wasn't a very successful way of, of proceeding. So I, I think that's, that sort of patronizing contempt for public opinion in, in Hong Kong was something that um, I think challenged, made the Chinese even more cross than some of the modest changes we were making in, in the composition of the legislature. Could we have done more earlier? Well, two things. First of all, when there were much earlier suggestions that we should introduce um, greater democracy in Hong Kong, um, Chinese, including Chow in Lai, um, said, but you, you mustn't do that because it'll give people in Hong Kong the idea that they're going to be like any other British colony and they're going to become an independent um, state. They're not. They're coming back to us. Um, so they mustn't be given the impression that they're going to be treated like Singapore or Malaysia. So I think that was one thing which, which, um, which constrained. But I also think that by the mid-80s, certainly by the time we were negotiating the Joint Declaration, we could have gone further and should should have gone further, particularly when there was a there was a public consultation about whether Hong Kong wanted f a faster pace pace of of um, directly elected seats. Mm. Somehow, this consultation produced the result amazingly that people didn't want that. They plainly did, and I think that exercise, to be frank, was fiddled. Mm. Um, and I don't think it's Britain's most glorious um, contribution to the life of. Uh, of, of Hong Kong. I think my predecessor but one, Teddy Yude, was probably ambushed by Percy Craddock and others and prevented from doing more, which I think he would have liked to have done. Percy Craddock who was in Percy the Craddock who was the who was the who was the the guru, the Pope, the cardinal, the high the, the high priest of of alleged orthodoxy on on uh, China. It has to be said that an incredibly clever man acerbic not not the greatest fun though there's now there's now a case made out for the fact that he was always telling the Chinese what we were what we were up to and what we were going to do which I think um, is, is is an extraordinary case to put mm -hmm. but ultimately he was wrong because his his basic position he wasn't he wasn't um, soapy and romantic about the Chinese he said he said, he said the Chinese leadership may be thuggish dictators, but they're men of their word. Well, part of that is true, but the men of their word, give me a break. Mm. Yeah, yeah. So one thing I've thought about a lot is, is the inequality in Hong Kong, the economic inequality in Hong Kong, which I, I observed firsthand when I was there in 2012, 2016, most visible through the housing market that makes buying a flat a distant dream for, for a lot of highly, highly qualified graduates even. The protests of the Occupy protests in 2014 and the subsequent protests in 2019, 2020, obviously the, the primary impulse was, was about democracy and the rule of law. But you could definitely also sense an undertone of sort of social injustice, um, sort of people feeling that they were sort of not, you know, being listened to. Or, and, you know, we saw similar things in other civil, you know, in other kind of developed countries um, after the financial crisis. I just wonder, I mean, is there a sense maybe that 
if the Hong Kong government had been a bit more, taken a bit more proactive approach to redistribution and sort of being a bit more egalitarian, could they have avoided a, a showdown? First of all, you're entirely correct that there was a real sense of social inequity in Hong Kong. And bear in mind that between 1992 and 1997, I was regularly called a socialist, even a communist, as a which was odd from the from Beijing, um, for increasing welfare spending. Mm. But we did it every year. We increased welfare spending while continuing not to have a, a sales tax and to have extremely low taxation. Only 60% of people paid salaries tax. The top rate was 15% and only 2% paid it. We had huge reserves, nevertheless. We, the number of, the amount of fiscal reserves in real terms went up six times between the joint declaration and its leaving. So there wasn't a shortage of money and we spent a lot on welfare, housing, health, uh, higher education, primary education, dis disability, and so on. But the biggest inequity was in the housing market. Mm. And that was partly a consequence of the way that public housing had been developed extraordinarily well under Murray McLehose and subsequently to cater with the huge number of refugees coming in from, from uh, China. Um, and secondly, a certainly by the 1990s, a worry at the same time as we were having arguments about other things to undermine the um, stock market and the economy by taking on too hard by taking too hard a line about both public and private housing. One of the consequences of the way that public housing had been organised, which unfortunately had not not been done like Singapore, where it was related to public uh, pension provision, was that you had people in public housing, in effect for life if they wanted who were sufficiently well off to buy private accommodation and then sublet mm. their public housing. And it made for real, real inequities. And it wasn't always an instrument of social mobility. It was to some extent, but, but increasingly, the real problem was the inability of young people and others to buy private housing at, at affordable prices. It was always going to be an area where because of the size of the place and because of the number of people, there was more demand than supply. But nevertheless, I would have liked, if we hadn't been leaving in 1997, I think one of the major things we would have had to have done was to reorganise public housing and the private um, housing market as well. So I think that was a problem. And I've got no doubt at all that there is a relationship between the sense of, of um, social injustice and the extremism with which people um, make their opinions heard and felt. And uh, I, I think that if you ignore that, um, then I think you're missing an important part of any community's story. So I do think um, that, is, that, is, that is a part of the story, though it's not as, as big a one as some others. I think the, I think the biggest reason for or one of the biggest reasons for the way things have gone is the the brutal way in which in which policing um, was used against, for example, the the uh, extradition treaty demonstrators in 2019. 
I want to come back to to something you said at the beginning, which is part of the reason for publishing these diaries, was sort of to inform the debate about how to how to deal with China now. And obviously, the the consensus has swung dramatically. There's a lot of talk now about economic decoupling, new Cold War, possibly even some sort of military confrontation. I mean, are you how do you think about that, and and do you sort of see that sort of confrontation as inevitable? What I see is an inevitable, if liberal democracies are going to, going to protect their own values, an, in, an inevitable attempt by them to not contain China, but to constrain Chinese bad behavior. I think if the Chinese get away with constantly breaking their word on whether it's the international health regulations or whether it's the WTO on which um, Obama was clear about the extent to which they fiddle things um, and elsewhere, I think if they constantly get away with that, then they'll go on doing it. And I think we can only manage it um, if, we, um, if we work together, if we stick together. And the, the, the situation isn't entirely bleak if we don't, but it's... You know, we have to demonstrate that we will work together and we have to demonstrate that we still believe in fundamentals of democracy. And I think if I'm being really bleak in, in, uh, in my views, what worries me most at the moment is whether America is still able to play the sort of leadership role um, in uh, uh, the democratic community that it was in the 40s and 50s. My favorite, well, one of my favorite books is a book which isn't as widely read in this country as I think it should be. All Our Yesterdays by Stefan Zweig, which describes European civilization at the beginning of the century and the way it was shredded by fascism and class warfare. And Zweig goes into exile with his wife. He writes this magnificent book. He sends it to his publisher. The day after he sent it to his publisher, he and his wife commit suicide because he thinks that night has fallen on, on Europe. And that was before the 1C conference planned the murder of 6 million Jews. Now, in fact, if he'd been around in 46, 47, 48, the 50s and 60s, he would have been amazed by what happened in Europe. So you can turn things around if liberal democracies work together, but they actually have to go on showing that they, they value um, their, their, own, uh, uh, their own freedoms and that they'll stand up for them. And they won't, um, they'll take a really dim view of people like um, Orban um, if he were claiming to be part of still of the European Union of Values um, and they'll take a very tough line on Russia and and other autocracies so um, I think I think we can still win um, but I'm but I am worried about the extent to which the leadership of the Republican Party may or may not still believe in democracy yeah yeah maybe just as a final thought just to come back to to the future of Hong Kong. I mean, we're now in the situation where the sort of, the, the you know, kind of any sort of real freedom of expression or or attempt to sort of democratic, even the limited democratic participation that you had in Hong Kong has been pretty much squashed. People, even people that you, you the, the feature in your diaries, you know, in, in, in the early 90s are in prison, like Martin Lee and Jimmy Lai and so forth. But you still have this 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 city, which is you know economically very vibrant. Still has, it has, it's not like the rest of China. It has free capital controls. There's still information is still free, more freely available there than 
than, uh, than the rest of China. I mean, is that, I suppose that's the question is, do you sort of see that inevitable? It just becomes absorbed into China and another city in China, or is there sort of, is there some sort of role for Hong Kong, do you think, going forward that's slightly different than that? I think that um, it was always right to see Hong Kong as like the canary down the mine shaft. And I think um, if you can still hear that the canary chirping away, then uh, probably China is going to be all right. But the, but the canary has been, um, has been <laughs> pretty substantially stifled in the last few years. And I think what happens in, in Hong Kong is a good sign of what may or may not happen in China. I used to hope that Hong Kong and its sense of citizenship would seep into China more than Chinese communist um, views would seep into Hong Kong. I listen now to what people like Mr. Lee, the new chief executive, or even his predecessor, um, uh, both of them pretty good examples of quislings. Um, I now hit listen to what they say, and it sounds so much like old-fashioned communist speak that you want to tear, tear your hair out. But I now the most difficult question I find myself asked these days is when I when I'm talking to young Hong Kong students, or bump into people from Hong Kong, and they say, "Should we go back to Hong Kong?" I mean, I find that an incredibly difficult question to answer, because. You can't pretend that Hong Kong hasn't changed. You can say, which I hope is true, that you know you can't lock up an idea that sooner or later, the things that you and I believe in, the freedoms, the openness, and um, the values of an open society will triumph over neo-totalitarianism or authoritarianism because they always have in the past. You can argue that um, all countries sooner or later hit the middle income trap and have to change. Um, you can say all those things, but um, how much can you actually suggest that other people should be prepared to be braver than I've ever had to be? Yeah. So I think it's, it's um, I'm not saying it's you can't be optimistic about, about Hong Kong. And of course, one of the things which is depressing, I was talking to a, um, an allegedly left-wing, very rich Hong Kong lawyer last year, who said... Um, who was denying that there'd been any threat to the rule of law in Hong Kong, um, and then explained to me how we'd just bought a new boat. And I'm afraid that um, personal greed um, does play a role in uh, people's political judgments everywhere. It's not just a Hong Kong issue. Chris Patton, thank you very much for uh, joining the exchange. Thank you very much. That wraps up this episode of The Exchange. Thank you to Amanda Gomez, Thomas Sherman, Pranav Kiran, who produced it. You can listen to The Exchange on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen. Also sign up to our sister podcast, Views Room, and always check out our views every day on breakingviews.com.